Coming up this hour, today's Holocaust Memorial Day. We're going to discuss that. And then we're going to be joined by Mark Talbot, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Wheaton College. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, but Ian, last we talked, we were both uh, looking at possibly having to shovel snow and looking at the day. How was, how was your Tuesday night? How has your Wednesday been so far? Well, let me tell you, Brian, uh, shoveling snow after a knee surgery Ooh, is a real delight. Right. It's, a, it's a lot of fun. Did you actually do it? Well, no, my three-year-old's still out there. Um, <laughs> He is, Dad, taking, can I come in he is taking longer than I anticipated, but uh, yeah, he's got to earn his keep somehow. No, we, I have a, <laughs> I have a, I have an old snowblower, so it wasn't as bad, nice. but I'm definitely regretting it now is yes. what I would say. I'm in some additional pain now and I'm hearing my doctor's words in my head when he said, just take it easy for two weeks. <laughs> I'm coming no. up on one week and I'm hoping that's enough of taking it easy. So doesn't sound like it. Nope. He's I'm probably going to get yelled at <laughs> or at least your knee is yelling at you today. It's yeah, really I forgot is. about that. Yep. I just I shoveled and was really hurting and knew I shouldn't have done it just because I'm old and my back hurts all the time. So mm-hmm. I was just mm-hmm. pushing snow. But yeah, anyway, we're glad to have everybody with us today on this Wednesday. I wanted to start actually in a bit of a somber place and a bit of a reflective spot. And that's this. I'm going to uh, Ian is our holiday guy who always tells us the holidays at some part. But today, an important one is that today is the Holocaust Remembrance Day, Holocaust Memorial Day. It is the 76 year anniversary of Auschwitz of the day that Auschwitz was liberated. Uh, and it says thousands around the world mark the day in private as COVID-19 prevents the usual large ceremony. And so uh, in the importance of remembering a really difficult time in human history, uh, let me just start there. Uh, I would say, why is it important that we take time, pause, remember something as heavy and as sad as the Holocaust? I mean, I, I think it does a couple of things. Remembering difficult things stands uh, against the natural flow of culture to only focus on wins and celebrations and up and to the right. You know, I feel like there's like a, just a natural pull of the human heart to like always go from birthday party to celebration to anniversary. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's important. I also think there's so much to be learned from history, you know, to remember that, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, this was not that long ago, you know, Correct. and that's always really haunting and overwhelming, but, but also kind of convict, you know, it's easy to sort of, point fingers over my shoulder, but like, well, way back then they didn't do this or they did that. I, you know, I want to always, it's what inspired me to read history at all, to be honest. Like, what am I, what am I missing about the human condition right now that has been here for a long time, but just looks different, you know, with technology and social media and all that. So I think, I think that's really important. And, and to also recognize that like, there are people right now who are like bearing the weight and gravity and emotional spiritual scars of something that, you know, you might not even, there might be people in your life that you don't even know are connected in some profound way that are just going about their life and, you know, they're raising their kids and they're paying their mortgage. And I I think it's also a really important time just to stop and pause and recognize like, man, there's a, there's a weightiness to this that, you know, people feel to varying degrees. I think is just really, really important for us to, to stop and um, 
again, yeah, that stopping, I think is, is so important to, to stop and pause amidst all of our doing and striving and achieving and yeah. all those things can be good. But, uh, I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really, really important. What would you say? Yeah. Well, this article here says the Auschwitz museum is holding a virtual event dedicated to the 200,000 child victims murdered at the Nazi camp. Like that yeah. number is just unbelievable. I, I think you put it well about the importance of remembering, uh, the the dark parts of history uh, so as to make sure they don't happen again, but also just to pay respect to those who suffered. I'll never forget. I think I've told you this story before, but I'll never forget when my oldest daughter was in the sixth grade. I always loved to, especially when my kids were younger, to be the guy who the dad who uh, uh, would volunteer to chaperone uh, field trips. And uh, when my daughter was in sixth grade, we I chaperoned her sixth grade field trip. Uh, to there is a Holocaust museum in Skokie, right? So not far from here. And uh, I went and, you know, when you go with sixth graders on a field trip where, you know, you ride the bus and it's craziness. Like, you're like, why am I on this trip? Like, this is just super stressful. These kids are out of control. And we got to this Holocaust museum and, and somebody came in and was like, hey, show respect. And you're like, oh, man, what are we getting ourselves into? And then we proceeded to walk through the museum. And I've never seen sixth graders or people, kids of that age grow so respectful and quiet because of what they were looking at. It Hmm. was overwhelming. And then we went into like an auditorium and we heard from a Holocaust survivor, got up and spoke uh, and then went through the uh, the museum again. uh, And and then the kids, there were kids like in tears. They were whispering. There was like this you realize the depth of the gravity and like the solemnity of it by watching these sixth graders. Cause the, you know, I went in going, gosh, I hope they don't break things. <laughs> and I just yeah, right. hope they don't do this. I'll never forget. Also when I was uh, in high school is when uh saving private Ryan came. Or, I'm sorry. Saving private Ryan uh, Schindler's list. <laughs> yeah. I just got my, uh, my movies wrong mm. when Schindler's list came out and uh, we took an entire day. Our school rented out a movie theater and we saw it and then discussed it. And, all that to say, I, I think that like parents, I think we need to be talking, make sure our kids know about these things. And we need to be uh, we need to be talking to them about hard things and helping them understand the history of these things so that it doesn't uh, get repeated. And like the last couple of minutes we have. Uh, what about the parents who are out there? Not just parents, but people like I just want to think of the happy stuff. Like there's enough darkness, COVID, all this other stuff. I I just want to hear you guys laugh. You're the laughing pastors, right? Why talk about stuff like that? What What would you say to the people? I know you already talked about the the value of remembrance, but the people who want to avoid the hard stuff of life. What What would you say to them? I mean, I I would say that I get it. Mm-hmm. I understand it. Like there's you don't find me running to situations of of discomfort and suffering nor do i think we should i mean i think we've we've seen that throughout history as well and that's that's not a helpful counter approach like all right well i'm gonna seek suffering out then i don't i don't think that's the goal either but you know to recognize that we are we are holistic people we're integrated people and to only engage in the areas that make us you know happy or excited or celebrant like i think that it's it's the natural human condition and some more than others to, you know, to only want to focus on one part. But I think mm-hmm. there is a, a depth of character and maturity. And I think ultimately compassion that when we allow ourselves to sit with either our own suffering or the suffering of others, it it deepens our own roots. It creates a greater capacity in each of us to care for 
other people and their suffering, regardless of how great or small it is. And I think when you look at the life of Jesus and he even gives outright warnings, like in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to mm-hmm. face persecution. People will hate you on my behalf. Like you're going to, I mean, even his, his life itself, you see that Jesus lived a perfect life and yet still endured suffering. If, if we then are Christ followers, then it should, should be no surprise to us that, that will sometimes lead us to places of suffering and rather than avoid it, you know, perhaps maybe asking God, where are you in this? What, mm-hmm. what are you doing in the midst of this? And I think the more that we can sit in those things and, and learn practices like lament, uh, the better off that we'll be in the long run. Yeah. And and with that in mind, we have a guest coming on for the next two segments. His name is Mark Talbot, the associate professor of philosophy at Wheaton College, who just wrote a book called When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture. So exactly what we've been talking about. uh, We're going to have an author and a scholar on to discuss more. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. And we are thrilled to be joined for two segments uh, by Mark Talbot. Mark is an associate professor of philosophy at Wheaton College and also the author of When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. Uh, We're really glad to have you. Besides, as people who listen to the show know, I'm a proud alum of Wheaton College. So anytime we can get some profs from Wheaton on, uh, I'm I'm certainly glad about that. But other than uh, being a prof at Wheaton, why don't you let our audience know uh, who you are? Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? I uh, grew up in Seattle, Washington. My dad was an engineer at Boeing when Boeing uh, had its main headquarters only in Seattle. I took an, had an accident when I was 17. I fell about, fell about 50 feet off a uh, Tarzan-like rope swing wow. and broke my back and became partially paralyzed from my waist down uh, after that. Um, it was after that that I became serious about thinking and ended up doing philosophy, uh, largely to understand myself and understand my uh, situation in life, and uh, that has been my trade ever since. Yeah. So that that actually makes a lot of sense that you would be inclined to write about suffering. And believe it or not, it's actually a, a topic that I personally care deeply about. And I feel like after the last year that we've all had, it's a topic that a lot of people are interested in. A lot of people are researching, or at the very least, Googling. So before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, I would love to know, from your vantage point, how how does suffering affect us? How does it shape us? How does how does it form us? Really good question, and it seems to me that uh, suffering um, needs to be defined as anything that um, uh, either uh, we find unpleasant enough or harmful enough that we'd like it to end. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, given that it's that sort of thing. It means that whenever we suffer, we tend to reevaluate. We tend to ask, why are we suffering? Um, uh, we, we want to know if there's a way that we can get it to stop. All of that helps us to reevaluate where we are in life. And that's a tremendously important thing for us as human beings because we tend to get distracted awfully easily. Um, as sinful people, 
um, we we find ourselves again and again tending to be uh, t- tending to major on minor things. And quite often, what suffering does is it calls us back to considering what's really important and then focusing and concentrating on it. Yeah, and uh, this new book you wrote again is called "When the Stars Disappear," and in it you speak about suffering profoundly. Uh, so, what do you mean by that sentence to suffer profoundly, and how does suffering profoundly then affect us? Profound suffering I define in the book or characterize in the book as experiencing something that's so deep and disruptive that it dominates our consciousness and it threatens to overwhelm us, and therefore often tempts us to lose hope that our lives can ever be good. Uh, Calamities can be a form of profound suffering. I start the book by talking about the suicide of one of my students, and Mm. that was, of course, a calamity for his parents. There are also chronic conditions that can be forms of profound suffering, such as perhaps someone's caring uh, continuously for a severely disabled child, or my student's experience who took his life was that he had what seemed to be a never-ending struggle with depression. Mm. Profound suffering tends to burn the fat off our hearts. And we actually find that uh, hinted at or talked about to some degree in Psalm 119. The psalmist, almost at the middle of that psalm, says to his Lord, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. The insolence smear me with lies, but my whole heart, but, but with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, mm. but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And so the picture is that really severe suffering, rather than Uh, Being the sort of thing that leads us away from God is often what brings us more closely to him, Mm -hmm. as paradoxical as that seems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I I mean, that's certainly been my my own experience. And you mentioned the psalm there. We have a friend, Aubrey Sampson, who wrote a great book on lament called The Louder Song. And it's a, a topic we've tackled a lot this last year in particular. I'd love to know. What value or wisdom or life do you think we can draw from the Psalms? If, if it's true that, you know, a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament, they're not songs of rejoice and celebration, but of, of crying out to God. What, what can we learn from that? Mm-hmm. Well, I have a whole chapter on the songs of lament and uh, when the stars disappear. Uh, and I say that they actually teach us breathing lessons. Uh, What they do is they teach us, first of all, that we mustn't stop breathing. And, of course, the picture here is that quite often when we're in severe pain, that's exactly what we tend to do. We tend to stop breathing. Uh, The Psalms make clear that we need to continue breathing in the sense of talking to God. And then they also give us a rhythm for that breathing that has more or less three beats to it. Uh, If you look at any of the Psalms of Lament, This is true of every one of the individual psalms of Lent, except for Psalm 88. If you look at them, you find out that the psalmists try to remember what God has done for them in the past. At some point, then, they end up being willing to exhale all of the things that are bothering them. So the remembering is a kind of inhaling. They exhale their lament, and then they again remember and inhale God's word, and all of them except for Psalm 88 
end up either praising God or vowing to praise him when things get better. Mm. And I know for those of us who've been around the church uh, for any amount of time, we know that in suffering, people often point people to the book of Job. Uh, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'm wondering how the story of Job uh, can encourage us, encourage us to not give up. And also, how do we maybe mishandle the book of Job and use it in ways that maybe it wasn't meant to be used? Yeah, uh, Job, uh, in fact, comes up in both my second and my fourth chapters. What I do in the second chapter is I deal with Naomi's suffering, and then I deal with Job's suffering, and finally with Jeremiah's suffering. But I stop at the point where they, in fact, uh, are in the depths of their suffering, and where, for instance, Naomi um, wants her name changed because she says, I'll never see, uh, she, 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 she wants to have her name changed to bitter instead of pleasant because she thinks that her life is going to be bitter from here on out. Job says, uh, my eye will never see good again. Well, between the second chapter where I talk about that and talk about Jeremiah and the fourth chapter, I interpose the stuff on breathing lessons from the Psalms. But in the fourth chapter, I pick back up on their stories. And with both Naomi and Job, we find out that they were wrong in thinking that their lives would never again become good. And in fact, we get a lot of lessons at the same time with regard to um, uh, the way that they should think about God and what, in fact, he is doing in the suffering that they have. Uh, we're thrilled to be joined uh, by Mark Talbot, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Wheaton College, but also the author of uh, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture. This is such an important topic. You know, we're in the midst of a pandemic right now. Obviously, we all know that, and it's gone on much longer than we thought. And the numbers, we see the death tolls up there. Um, As we are in that, a lot of what we've talked about is kind of individual suffering. But what about this collective suffering we're going through right now? How would you, uh, you know, when we speak to churches, what would you give uh, advice-wise to churches or, uh, you know, to your school? And how do we process and, and think about God in the midst of a pandemic? Important question. It seems to me that um, one of the things that a pandemic does is that it helps us to remember that this world is under judgment, uh, that it is under God's wrath, and that everybody in the world is. If you read Ecclesiastes, you find out that bad things happen both to the righteous and to the wicked, and that sometimes good things happen to the wicked and bad things to the righteous. Um, The author of Ecclesiastes is trying to make clear that under the sun, God keeps his causal regularities in place. And it means that Christians as well as non-Christians are going to suffer from the various kinds of diseases that can strike biological creatures of our sort. That means, among other things, that we in the church need to be patient and realize that God is not likely to uh, change the trajectory of the ways that we suffer as Christians with COVID over the ways that uh, anyone else does. And therefore, we have every bit as much need Hmm. to um, think about things like masks and so on and so forth and social distancing. We are to pray, always to pray, that God will deliver us from significant suffering. But that doesn't mean 
given what Ecclesiastes says, that he's going to take it away from us and that somehow things are going to be much easier for us than it is going to be for non-Christians. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really good. I, I was studying Matthew 20 earlier today, and uh, there was a verse that kind of jumped out to me, particularly in preparation for this interview, where James and John are kind of missing the point by asking Jesus a question that seems to have missed what Jesus was just saying. And Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they give a kind of surprising answer. They're like, yeah, we're able. We, we can do that. You know, the, the cup historically being the cup of suffering. And I, I'd, lo- I'd, love to, I'd love to hear your thoughts, I guess, on sometimes our disconnect from thinking we can endure suffering in an existential sense. But then when it actually comes time to endure it, we're like, never mind. Pull the, pull the ripcord. I'm not, I'm not interested <laughs> yep. in this. Lord, take this away from me. Yeah. Do you find that in your own research that often like we're much more willing in theory than we are actually in practice. I see. I think that's true just in daily life, Ian. Hmm. Uh, What we find is that uh, profound suffering in particular is such that unless we have gone through it, it just doesn't strike us as being something real. You remember when all the kids died in the Sandy Hook tragedy Mm -hmm. uh, back east in Connecticut. I remember seeing some pastors on uh, national television who were doubting God's very goodness because of what had happened to those kids. Uh, They couldn't see how a tragedy uh, that took that many lives could be one that God would allow. And what struck me was that almost exactly the same number of children probably died when Herod went after Christ right after his birth and wanted to kill him Mm -hmm. so that he uh, had no chance of uh, challenging Herod's rule. So we need to, we need to recognize that before people suffer really seriously, um, really serious suffering doesn't even seem as if it's possible to them. And that means that when we have friends who suddenly suffer for the first time, uh, we need to be patient with them. And we need to recognize that it's going to take them a while to work all of this through. And we need to realize with ourselves that when we suffer different kinds of ways, that sometimes just a different kind of suffering has exactly the same effect on us, that we just find ourselves at the place where we think, how could God allow this to happen to us if he's good? Mm. Uh, And we've talked a lot about suffering, how we endure it or in our own lives. But what about when somebody close to you is suffering, a family member, a friend? What is the best way? uh, What is the most helpful way to uh, love for and care for someone in your life who is suffering profoundly? My guess there isn't, is that there isn't one answer to that, Brian. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that it's going to depend on who the person is, how much the person has suffered before, uh, how, much, how long the suffering has gone on. I think quite often um, it's actually harder on us to see someone we love suffer than it is for we ourselves to suffer. And I think it's partly because we tend to imagine that the suffering is a lot worse for that person than the way that it's experienced. I know that that often happens. I walked with um, a cane for years and then with two crutches, and now I'm in a wheelchair. I find out that quite often people just assume that my suffering is much more awful day to day than it is. So one of the things that happens is that we we really, by not being in their shoes, we tend sometimes uh, to misinterpret exactly how their suffering is. But then we need to listen to them and we need to determine 
when it's appropriate to speak. Of course, Job's friends put in mm-hmm. scare quotes. Job's <laughs> friends did what they should have for the first seven days. They, first of all, didn't even recognize him. They kept their mouths shut for seven days. But then they started to say, OK, this is what you've done that mm-hmm. is wrong. And that was the point where they multiplied his suffering in remarkable ways. Quite often, the first thing is for us just to, so to speak, stand or sit with a sufferer and not try in any way to tell them what their suffering is about. Right. That's so helpful. I so appreciate you saying that. I, I understand, too, this is also uh, one of what's going to become, what, 47 volumes? Is that what you're <laughs> <laughs> Four volumes. Yeah. Four volumes. Okay. But I, I understand you're actually already working on volume two right now, and it's going to be released sometime soon. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it is uh, called Give Me Understanding That I May Live, hmm. Situating Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan. Hmm. Um, The first volume talks about the fact that in order for us to live meaningful lives, in order for us to be oriented, this is where the idea of when the stars disappear comes from in Acts 27 and 28, where when Paul was on his way to Rome and they got in this horrible storm, the sun and the stars disappeared and they didn't know where they were. In order for us to get oriented in life, we need an individual story that tells us where we are within the trajectory of our personal lives. But uh, even more, what we really need is a general story that tells us what human beings are uh, and what we're supposed to do. The first volume is dealing largely with our personal stories by working through the personal stories of Naomi and Job and Jeremiah, and then the personal stories in the Psalms. The second volume is dealing with this full Christian story of creation, rebellion, redemption, and consummation, and uh, trying to have us understand what it is that uh, God's plans are for his people so that no matter what we're going through, we can fit our individual personal stories into the trajectory of God's uh, long-term story. Yeah. Mark, this has been such a joy. Thanks so much for joining us. Before we let you go, where can people find other things you've written, whether it be uh, your books, websites, social media? Where can people find you? Um, They could go to uh, christianscholarsfund.org. I um, have been uh, the main scholar for Christian Scholars Fund for the last few years, and, and quite a few of my pieces are there. Uh, if people wanted to, they could go to academia um, dot com, where there's a lot of my pieces there too. Um, right. Probably the easiest way to get hold of me is to contact the philosophy department at Wheaton, and they can uh, uh, relay any messages or anything to me through there. Well, perfect. Mark Talbot, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Wheaton College, also the author of uh, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture. Mark, this was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. We are really glad to have you with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Ian, an interesting story the other day about Justin Bieber. You're a you're a big Biebs fan, right, Justin Bieber? Oh, He's, he is. Uh, you, you listen to him on a regular basis? Uh, I'm listening to him right now. Baby, baby, 
<laughs> That's interesting. Uh, Justin Bieber, there was this article up that was he got kind of introspective and he seems to be a very complex and interesting individual young man about, uh, you know, he's he talks often about his faith in Christ. Uh, he, he talks about in this article about how crazy his life was at a young age. And, uh, and this was as Justin Bieber reflects on his 2014 arrest. He says, God has brought me a long way. The pop star posted a photo of his 2014 DUI arrest on Saturday for his 160 million followers. Uh, kind of the same number of followers you have, right? 160 million? About the same. Yeah, it's in the same ballpark for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Justin Bieber, let me read this. He's reflecting. The pop star posted a photo uh, on Saturday of his 2014 arrest. He said, seven years ago today, I was arrested. Not my finest hour, the 26-year-old wrote. Uh, not proud of where I was at my life. I was hurting, unhappy, confused, angry, misled, misunderstood, and angry at God. Uh, and then he joked, I also wore too much leather for someone in Miami. At the time, Bieber pleaded guilty to misdemeanor, careless driving and resisting arrest, uh, and he settled out of court. Bieber said he's grateful for the experience, changed his life for the better. He says, all this to say, God has brought me a long way. From then till now, I do realize something. God was as close to me then as he is right now. My encouragement to you is to let your past be a reminder of how far God has brought you. Don't allow shame to ruin your today. Let your forgiveness of Jesus take over and watch your life blossom into all that God has designed you to be. He shared, he wrote, love you guys with my whole heart. And the article goes on to say, uh, you know, he was 13. A lot of stuff was thrown. Can you imagine at the age of 13 having worldwide fame like he did? Uh, And he just talked about being in the public eye and drug abuse and all this other stuff. But uh, Ian, you might, people might be wondering, all right, Justin Bieber, why are we talking about this? This idea about shame and guilt and forgiveness what do you think about kind of the perspective he had there looking back where would you say uh, what's important for us maybe to grasp there about our past shame our past sins god's forgiveness what do you think he got right and maybe uh or is there any caution from what you heard what you read from him yeah i'd probably say a couple of things um i think one it's important to to recognize and measure i think our spiritual growth over months and years rather than like minutes and seconds. You know, I, I had a mentor that I think he must've sensed I was kind of frustrated with my own spiritual growth or lack thereof, you know? And I had like, I was like the guy that went to the gym twice and was like bummed. I wasn't ripped. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes. like you know, you've, you've just sort of implemented some of these rhythms and you've just started scratching the surface. And, and these are, these are going to be things that take years to develop. And so I think the same is true in hindsight, you know, when you look back, like he has, say, oh man, that kid from 10 years ago, yeah, I don't know that I recognize it a month or a year after the fact, but now a decade after the fact, I can recognize, man, God has, has really been good to me and protected me mm-hmm. and and guided my steps in some way, shape or form. Like, I think that's I think that's really helpful. That's not something I'm very good at and kind of like looking over my shoulder, like where God has, has brought me from. I also think like Brene Brown has done some incredible work on on shame and guilt. She says something like, there's a really important difference. You know, guilt says I did something bad and shame says I am something bad. And I think that Mm. distinction is really, really important because there will be times where we legitimately make a misstep and we say something or do something toxic or hurtful or harmful and say like, ah, there's no, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You're like, (laughs) that's, that's true. Like in an eternal sense from a salvific sense, we do also need to recognize, and I think there should be a, a healthy amount of like conviction that said, yeah, I don't want to be that 
person to myself and to others anymore. I don't want to bring that. I don't want to fracture Shalom in that kind of way. Shame, mm. though, shame keeps us stuck. Like guilt, I think, can motivate us to to taking steps toward health and healing. Shame keeps us stuck, kind of wrapped up in like, I'll never be any different. I'm always going to do this. I always do this. I always will do this. No one will love me. I'll never, you know, God, God will never direct my steps in any way that's meaningful. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the voice mm-hmm. of shame, I think. And I think that's, a, there's an important balance there because if you, if you go to the point where like, well, there's no consequences to anything because I'm a Christian. And so I don't got to worry about whoever I upset or whatever harm I bring on people. You're like, no, I think, I think Jesus people should be concerned with that. It just, it's just the kind of concern that we have with it that matters. And I think that's, that's an important distinction. Yeah. And Bieber goes on to talk about his life being, he says, by age 20, I made every bad decision you could think of. Uh, most people hated me. Like, just think about being that point at 20 years old. Uh, he says this. Uh, he says, I felt like I could never turn it around. It's taken me years to bounce back from all of these terrible decisions, fix broken relationships and change relationship habits. Luckily, God blessed me with extraordinary people who love me for me. And and with the rest of our time, I mean, I, you know, I know people, I think we all know people, and there might be people out there who feel this way right now where they're at. Exactly what he wrote there. I felt like, or I feel like I could never turn it around. What would you say to the person out there, Ian, right now, who's like, I've done so much, I can't even see up from down. Like, I'm just, I I can't even imagine that God would ever take me back, let alone other people who I love and who I've hurt. What about the person out there who says, like Bieber did here, I felt like God could, I felt like I could never turn it around. Yeah, I mean, again, I would say, I get it. And candidly, I've been there and Mm -hmm. have, have looked at my life and thought, Nah, this this is broken beyond repair. There's there's no coming back from this one. Or there's no, you know what I mean? Like I've I've sat in those spaces, and I think there's so much about the Bible that I love. Not the least of which is it doesn't shy away from just the horrifically dumb decisions that people in the Bible make. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if anything, it feels like God almost seems to specialize in like calling, equipping, and using the most unexpected people. Not just unexpected to the reader, but unexpected to the people at the time that it was happening, like really this guy, this woman from (laughs) from that town with this background, are you sure? Like that seems, that seems, if you feel like that, you were in very, very good company because that to me is, is such a good reminder. Grace isn't just simply like, Oh, I get to go to some celestial place when I die rather than mm, the other place. Mm -hmm. Great. Grace is like freedom from the treadmill now of feeling like oh, I need to always be accomplishing or achieving or, or, or have some kind of scorecard and or in order for God to love me, like, no, God already loves us freely in Christ Jesus. And it's from that posture then that, yeah, we put blood, sweat and tears into what we do into, you know, grace driven effort, our own sanctification. But you know, the order is completely different. It's not doing these things so that God will love us. It's, and he already loves us extravagantly anyway. Mm-hmm. And because of that, that changes our whole posture about how we approach life and healing even within ourselves. And I think uh, that is, that's the invitation of the cross. And that, that is always, always timely for all of us, I think. Yeah. And that promise of him being near to the brokenhearted and, you know, Jesus tells the parable of, you know, the famously the prodigal son story. And these are all things that we can hold on to. Uh, and, and then to see stories like this, you know, Justin Bieber, he's famous and 
you know, who knows the ups and downs of his life. Uh, but there's a lot of you out there going, yeah, I don't feel like I can turn around or I have a testimony where I felt like I could never turn it around. I would encourage you uh, to encourage people with that story. So I thought that'd be fun to talk about. Hopefully it encourages some of you out there. Well, the first hours in the books, uh, we're looking forward to the second hour here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about John MacArthur, six surprises I wish my premarital counselor had covered, and we're going to end the show with some good news. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday in uh, someone that we have been talking about a lot, it feels like over the past couple months is John MacArthur. And I wanted to start there because we haven't really talked recently. Uh, we've talked about COVID, uh, but we haven't. It's been a couple of weeks, I think, since we've talked about the church and COVID. Like, should we be open? Shouldn't we be open? What do we believe about all this stuff? And so uh, as is his custom, John MacArthur had some uh, stuff to say that I think you're going to have some thoughts on. <laughs> okay, sure. That's the way I want to do this. Uh, so it was at the Christian Post. It is entitled this. Biggest churches push superficial Christianity. Phonies now being exposed. That mm. is the words of John MacArthur. So uh, let me just start us here. Some of America's biggest churches support a culture of corrupt, quote, superficial Christianity and made a lot of money doing it. But the Internet is now making it harder for, quote, phonies to survive. Pastor John MacArthur recently said uh, he did this from the pulpit at his church, Grace Community Church in California. MacArthur suggested that the pandemic combined with the technological shift in ministry has led to, quote, a sifting and shifting. And let me read this one and then I'll get your thoughts. He said, we had for decades people trying to create a cultural Christianity that would appeal to nonbelievers. That was accepting of immorality, homosexuality, accepting of racial hatred. Uh, there was a kind of superficial, shallow Christianity that watered down the gospel, didn't talk about sin, tried to have a positive message. And it was very successful. And I get it because I fought the battle well for almost all the time I've been here. Uh, he goes on to say that this sort of superficial Christianity made a lot of money, elevated a lot of charlatans, was successful, but now it's falling apart. I don't even know what to ask you, man. What do you think of that critique? And what do you think? Do you think he is not only right, but also uh, it's right for him to be making these kind of judgments on some of these other churches? Well, I, I don't think you could deny that there's some truth to that. I mean, I, I feel like we've done a number of stories of unfortunate situations between pastors and church leaders and, mm -hmm. you know, Christian entrepreneurs who are found out to be maybe not quite what they appeared. Um, it is, it is interesting to me in a context like this where he, he you know, he goes after what's he say here, the, the filthy rich. And I looked it up just now. His net worth is $14 million. So oh, wow. <laughs> that's, that's pretty rich, right? I mean, that's, that's certainly, I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not knocking him for that. I just, right. it is, it is. And I know these are written a bunch of books and that revenue comes from all sorts of different places. I'm just saying, if you're going to call out <laughs> pastors for getting Fair. really wealthy while pastoring, 
having 14 mil in the bank is maybe slightly problematic for me. I don't know. Um, your other question was, is his critique fair or is the context fair? This is the kind of stuff where I, where we would probably part ways. Like there is certainly a, an element of the pulpit that I think it is appropriate to to call out uh, false teachers, false prophets, to dissect and discern, you know, truth from lies. But it sometimes feels like for MacArthur and others, kind of in his camp, that the pulpit sometimes is used as like a battering ram to send a message to quote unquote those other people. And I'm not even saying like, don't do it, man. That's your prerogative. But the pulpit, I don't know. Maybe I'm too old school in this regard. The pulpit to me, doesn't seem like the right venue for that. And that's a big part of where my uneasiness comes from. Did you just call yourself old school in relation to John MacArthur? <laughs> yeah, I, I have. I got some old school uh, proclivities. <laughs> I I I agree with you. I, I it it's uncomfortable to me that uh, that this is coming in the midst of the Sunday sermon. But he then goes on to say. Uh, that he explained that despite efforts by government authorities to shutter his church during the pandemic, he has managed to defy every restriction and remain open regardless of fines and court actions against his church. Quoting MacArthur here, they tried every way to close Grace Church, and I think it is true that there is no more scrutinized church in the U.S. than Grace Community Church, he said, calling out major uh, media organizations as well as, quote, ungodly bloggers who tried to discredit his church. I'm still here, he said. MacArthur said the decision to remain open in defiance of government restrictions has been a blessing to his church. He said, even though the church had not collected an offering in the last 10 months, congregants have, quote, given more in the last 10 months than any 10-month period in the history of the church. MacArthur fought for his church's legal right to hold indoor services. We talked a lot about that. He said, in the middle of the lawsuit, the Lord has grown our church. So this was a very small, tiny local church until COVID. 1,000 new members, baptisms. Uh, did you hear the testimonies? There's even a new evangelical term. I love it. It's called grace refugees, he said, as his congregation laughed. It's the people who had no other church to go to, so they came here as church refugees. Uh, and then he goes on to basically say that this is kind of the work they've done. Uh, so let's focus now on his uh, this he's been the church fighting, basically shutting his publicly uh, saying, we're not going to listen to any of this. We're going to stay open as we've always been. And he's kind of saying, listen, we've we're making budget. We're growing. All these people are coming. God's blessing us. And uh, I know you and I have churches that have handled it differently than certainly MacArthur's church. Uh, how how would you how do you accept or critique or agree with how he's kind of taking looking back over the last 10 months of what's happened at his church and churches across the country. Oh boy. I don't, Did uh, I set you, up? you, well, no, it's, it's fair. You know, we've covered this story a, a couple of times over the last 10 or 11 months. I guess part of what frustrates me is that there didn't seem to even be an effort to, to try and comply with some of the like, outdoor suggestions you know it seemed like there, there was like a real strong grip on like no we're not we're not even gonna we're not gonna budge an inch in that direction at all we're gonna keep meeting there's nothing you can do about it you know like it's it's in a lot of ways kind of opposite that andy stanley sermon we referenced months ago where he's like the, the point of christianity isn't to demand our rights like that's that's not at the core 
of the message of Jesus is us demanding our way. It's we're followers of the way, you know, like there's a, there, and I'm looking even at the comments of this article and there's a lot of people saying good, good for you. You, you stood your ground. Um, all these other churches are becoming too worldly and they're accepting whatever the government hands them. And mm-hmm. I, I'm not looking to debate in the last minute of this segment, at least that, yeah, standing your ground for what's right in a moral existential philosophical sense versus potentially endangering people are to me are two totally different categories. And there, yeah, there didn't seem to be even an interest in like, all right, what if we met you halfway? Or what if we, it was, it it was much more of like a, we're going to defy it and, and parade that as something that we celebrate as a church. And yeah, there's, there's aspects of that, 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 certainly trouble me yeah i i agree with you they're they're just feels again it's the written word i didn't listen to what he said there feels like an arrogance and and just kind of a god has blessed us for defying and and everybody else he has we read articles where he said churches that are basically complying aren't real churches and aren't doing what they've been called to do and uh and so i i get very uneasy when john MacArthur speaks about other churches and what's going on. Maybe you disagree with us. We'll put this up on our Facebook page uh, or Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Well, Ian and I are both pastors who have done our fair share of premarital counseling. And so we found this article, a list of six surprises I wish my premarital counselor had covered. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, I hope that you're having a great Wednesday. We started the show, if you missed it, we talked about the important holiday, the somber and kind of the one we wanted to focus on today. That being that today is a National Holocaust Remembrance Day. But Ian, you every day help us know kind of what are the random and the funny holidays of the day. So why don't you tell us about those? First off, Brian, they're not random. They're <laughs> very deliberate. There's a whole council of people who decide on these things, and, uh, <laughs> and they are now deeply, deeply offended. Here's some of the the real ones. Uh, Saint Devote's Day in Monaco. It's uh, Saint Seva's Day in Serbia. Um, and then with the fun ones, it's E Day. Which doesn't like sound fun. E. <laughs> yeah, but it's like E dash day. So I'm assuming like email, like electronic day. Okay. Okay. Maybe okay. I, I can't speak intelligently e, for like that. E cigarette day. Yeah. All of yeah. Them. It's probably E cigarette day. That's probably what it is, Brian. You nailed it. Your day. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Big E cig guy. Big into the. Are people, that. are people that are into it also saying things like e-cig are they saying yeah, I'm a it like big that? e-cig guy mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that's the first indication that you're probably not is if you talk like that um it's national chocolate cake day i saw that i got an email from portillo's not surprisingly telling me it's national chocolate cake day i knew that oh that's funny when i got that email my first thought was i wonder if this will be on ian's list <laughs> mm-hmm. there it is national chocolate cake day and then one that i'm glad i read ahead of time because I would have read it wrong. It's Library Shelfie Day, and not Selfie. Not selfie day, okay. I wasn't going uh, Sean Connery on you. It's Library Shelfie Day. So maybe it's the day that you reshelf things at the library. It's the fourth Wednesday of January, held on the fourth Wednesday of January. Since 2014, Library Shelfie Day was created by the New York Public Library. On that day, book lovers share 
selfies <laughs> of themselves in front of library shelves and in uh, front of shelves of their personal book collection. So it's kind of like book ownership bragging day is what the, is what they're saying. It's also like every Zoom call or like thing on TV right now where people uh-huh. are in front of their own bookshelves. So uh, and then uh, before we get into what we're going to talk about, I learned early on in my marriage out here that more than flowers, uh, a way to get like if I want to surprise my wife with something or if it's like a holiday or Valentine's Day, if I bring her a piece of Portillo's chocolate cake, done, done, loves it. What's what's so, done? I, I don't understand. She'll be happy. She's like, she will be thrilled more than flowers, more than any mm. gift I could bring her. Just a Portillo's chocolate cake. So as you were telling that story, I thought you were sticking with the shelf one. I was like. Oh, oh, no, no, no. But I was back to chocolate above, cake. Above women. flowers, though. If I take care of her library debt, let me tell you. <laughs> if I take care of her. He is elated. Yeah. If I pay those library fines, it's uh, a way to her heart. <laughs> 25 cents over the last 15 years. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, here's what I want to talk about. Ian and I, as we said, as pastors, we've both done our fair share of premarital counseling. I Serious question. Do you like doing premarital counseling? Uh, Yeah, it depends. It's a lot of work. Um, yes. I, I tend to only really do it with couples that I know really well. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that actually is a great honor, like to be able to walk with somebody, you know, who's about to make this massive decision. It is, there's a little part of it that's really fun for me too, because sometimes, sometimes what I'll do is I'll, I'll have sets of questions that they think are like so elementary. They're so obvious. And then come to find out they totally disagree on the answers. And you're That's like, right. see, this is why we ask these questions. You think you're above this, that you're beyond this. That That's always kind of a fun reveal moment. Like, okay, maybe there actually is something to this premarital stuff. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I also heard somebody once, I don't know if maybe you think this is true. I had a pastor tell me once that people, uh, that pastors either, his his philosophy was that pastors either enjoy doing weddings or enjoy f- doing funerals, but not many pastors enjoy both. That you're kind of wired for one or the other. I was like, I'm totally wedding guy. <laughs> so See, here's again, here's an example of a title you've given yourself that I'm going to keep bringing up. <laughs> I want guy. the record to show you said it. I'm not superimposing this on you. So next time a story comes up about a wedding, like, well, Brian, <laughs> the show's wedding guy. I'm going to. But this pastor that I was talking to, he's like, I just enjoy doing funerals so much more and being with families, walking them through like that. Was he a vampire? Like, oh, that- my. I, exactly. I was like, oh, my gosh, man. No, I will. I will do a wedding 10 times out of 10. Uh, it's, that, that is where uh, he, he had that interesting philosophy that you're either one or the other. So now, don't get me wrong. I, 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 um, I don't know that I would say I enjoy doing funerals, but I I. It's a part of the it's role, actually, that I, it really is an honor. And I have I have come to really deeply appreciate it. I will say that. Yeah. And so why I'm talking about premarital counseling, as as I said, we've both done our fair share of premarital counseling. Uh, this author at this uh, website called faithit.com, uh, Dave Harvey, gives us a list of six surprises I wish my premarital counselor had covered. It's another way of saying these are the things that are about marriage that are often true that before you're married, you just don't know are true. Uh, and so he he framed it this way. Here are six surprises I believe every pastor or premarital counselor should cover or that I wish that they had covered. So let's just work our way through this list. Okay. I will start us. Number one, 
the sin surprise. Uh, he said engagement is like walking through an amusement park with fogged up glasses. Interesting analogy there. Big, interesting picture. There's so much you don't see clearly, but who really cares? You're having fun. Here's the truth. Your fiance is more sinful than you know. Uh, if his or her sin hasn't already surprised you, you re- get ready. It will. I'm not saying your future spouse is hiding something. Uh, you just don't have eyes to see what's there. This is why you should seek counsel from friends, family, and the church before a relationship gets serious. That's a, it's a way of saying that, like, there, you know, when you're engaged, everything's perfect and that your spouse, you know, your, your partner is perfect and that you get married and you're like, oh, wait a minute, we're human beings and, uh, and we're going to have to work through some things. So that's his first surprise. Yeah, I don't know that I would recommend working that into the vows necessarily. Like, <laughs> honey, even though you're way more sinful than I even realize, I'm, <laughs> I'm committed to you. Like, maybe that's not. All right. So number two is the conflict surprise. He writes, I thought the early years of marriage were about how Kim needed to improve. You can guess where that led. According to marriage gurus, our early conflicts simply indicated a lack of communication skill. But the Bible says... What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your passions at war within you? Fights and arguments happen when we don't get what we we desire. My early conflicts with Kim revealed what I craved. I got angry with her because, well, I had an entitled heart. I wanted Kim to respect me. I thought being respected was some kind of inalienable right grounded in both scripture and the American Constitution. But it didn't take long before I saw how a good desire can corrupt into a harmful demand. That's a good word. I think learning conflict is probably one of the first things like I had a couple once walk in. I asked them how they fought and they sort of I looked at each other pretty proud. They're like, oh, we don't fight. And I was that's like, right. that's not as much of a strength as you think it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that when you get that couple that goes, We're, we've never fought. I'm like, well, get ready. <laughs> yeah, buckle up. <laughs> exactly. All right. We got a minute left. So let me read the other four and I'll let you just uh, close it out then. Uh, so number three was the slow change surprise. Change takes time, but most young couples believe that change happens just overnight. So slow yeah. change. Number four uh, is the sex surprise. I played uh, bass yeah. on the sex surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Married couples believe yeah. they have the Disney mindset, it says. But uh, and <laughs> that's a weird analogy. You're just, try, you're, just trying to power, you're just trying to power through this one, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> the Disney mindset. Yikes. Number five, the parents' <laughs> in-laws surprise. Uh, which is a hugely important one uh, that well, you don't just marry into with your spouse, but you marry into another family. And number six, the forgiveness is costly surprise. Uh, Ian, with our last couple seconds here, why don't you pick one or just close out this for uh, maybe somebody out there who might be thinking about getting married? Do you really want to give me mic time after what, what we were just talking about? Is that <laughs> after smart? I just, yeah, after that I smart just idea. stumbled and hemmed and hawed. <laughs> I know it's a list of surprises. My biggest surprise is that they linked sex surprise with the Disney mindset. That is that the is, most that one got surprising me. of the whole article. He does <laughs> he does go on to explain it in his defense. And it actually is a really good article. And if, if you're someone, I would say, honestly, even if you're not like in a premarital state, this is the kind mm-hmm. of thing, you know, we're we're fused into marriage and you're a couple of decades in. I think these are still good things. There's yeah. still good things to circle back to because you can you can forget that like kind of like with the Bieber story, you can forget how far you've come actually like, oh, yeah, we actually right. have done a lot of work in there's this area and we've had some hard conversations. So yeah, either way, I think it's I think it's a really helpful read. But most certainly, if you know somebody who's thinking about getting married, uh, send this their way. It's really helpful. 
Yeah, I remember telling a premar in a premarital session, like, hey, the stuff we're going to talk about here would probably be better for a year after marriage, not a year before. But you're going to thank me that we had these conversations. Yeah, right. The way it went. So anyway, give that a read. And as Ian said, even if you've been married for a while, I actually think these is this is a really helpful list. Well, coming up next, an article out of the Christian Post, more fathers satisfied with time spent with kids in the pandemic. We're actually going to talk to the author of that article, Leonardo Blair, coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, and we are thrilled to be joined on the line by Leonardo Blair. Leonardo is a reporter at the Christian Post uh, who wrote an article just today, I believe, called More Fathers Satisfied with Time Spent with Their Kids in the Pandemic. So, Leonardo, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Before we jump into the article, why don't you just introduce yourself to our audience, however you'd like. Uh, I've been uh, a reporter, a journalist for a while now. I've been um, working in the faith space for about eight years, and I cover the intersection of faith and uh, a lot of different things, including politics, life, and family. Oh, that's great. Now, this article actually co covers a couple of things that Brian and I have been mentioning ourselves over the last year or so. We're both uh, fathers and we're both working from home. And obviously, COVID has has shifted a bunch of things in ways that are anything but positive. But we, we have kind of anticipated some of this. And it sounds like Pew Research Center has shown that there's been an increase of fathers who are satisfied with the amount of time that they spend with their kids as opposed to just a few years ago. Could you tell us a little more about that study? Yeah. Um, uh, like I was mentioning to you guys earlier, um, this is sort of the data is sort of um, reflecting a sort of cloud in the silver lining. Um, we at the Christian Post, we have been sort of looking at the impact of uh, the COVID-19 on families over time. Um, I believe last year we also looked at some of the concerns that parents were having in terms of how the pandemic had been impacting the kids differently. So you had, for example, uh, boys were uh, perhaps spending more time um, on computers um, than girls and uh, the different ways in which churches were responding. Um, so this uh, particular study is generally just talking to uh, uh, the importance of um, fathers uh, in the lives of families and how that's, whether it's reluctantly or not, um, fathers have been spending a lot more time with their children. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Ian and I, as he said, uh, being two guys who end up now working from their homes uh, are seeing that as dads. I'm curious if any of the research or just your own kind of as you've dug into this, uh, once we come out of COVID and people can go back to their offices more regularly or travel to this or whatever else it might be, do you suspect that uh, in this study, dads, but just parents in general are going to be spending more time working from home at home. Do you think that this is going to be a change that lasts even beyond COVID? Um, I really do. Based on what I've been looking at, um, I really do think that there is not we're not going to go back to the old normal. Um, I think parents in general are going to have to 
deal with a sort of new normal because a lot of companies are sort of uh, looking at the benefits of having parents working from home. Um, I know that LifeWay recently announced that uh, they were sort of moving towards a more remote model of um, work-life balance. You know, so I think it might be a, a sort of mixed sort of review. So I'd be curious to know, what are some of the benefits of kids having more face time with their fathers? I guess one thing to say, hey, the fathers, because they're working at home, they're more satisfied. Yeah, they're ha- they're happier being around their kids. But it feels like this last year, Brian and I have done a number of research studies and read a number of articles that point to some greater significance that uh, having that kind of FaceTime, having that kind of connection actually can lead to all sorts of other benefits that I, I maybe otherwise wouldn't have thought of on my own. So what, could you tell us what some of those benefits are to ha- kids having more like physical presence time with dad? Like uh, I, I, I pointed out in, in the story, um, there's, there's research that points to kids uh, being less likely to drop out of school or end up in jail just having uh, an increased uh, presence of a father or a meaningful male role model in their lives. Um, And children who tend to have uh, sort of closer relationships with their fathers uh, are more likely to avoid high-risk behaviors, um, such as engaging in sex early. Um, And they generally, I mean, we've been talking about mental health um, one of the things that I, I believe some of the studies touched on is just to have that balance, right, uh, of, of, you know, mother and father inside the home instead of maybe a single parent arrangement. You, you know, fathers do bring um, a, a sort of steady hand to the home as long as the relationship is healthy. Yeah, and Leonardo, we're so glad that you've joined us today to talk about your article. I guess I'd close out this way. So again, I'm a dad, Ian's dad, and we've talked many times in the show how we're just home a lot more now. And it's been fun. It's good to be home. But there's going to come a day where COVID isn't the dominant factor in these types of things. So what would you say is the takeaway for a dad out there, myself or others who are listening? What is uh, what's the takeaway? Is it is it to be more committed to your family? Is it to make sure you're, you you don't go back to you know, being out all the time, what, what would you say is one or two takeaways for dads out there? A lot of us as fathers are sort of in this time learning um, that being a father is a whole lot more multifaceted than we thought it was. So um, I think we're, we're learning about our, our kids. My kids play soccer and, um, you know, uh, and they're on teams that, you know, most of the parents are very high powered professionals. And, you you know, just watching everybody who's sort of working from home here in the city, um, you you know, they're talking about how, you know, just coming to soccer now is sort of like a godsend Mm -hmm. for that. Maybe, you know, they would have a nanny or somebody else drop the kids off, but Mm. just, just coming to watch your kids play soccer is is a godsend so um you know there's a lot to learn about kids um during this time and many parents are worried about our kids so um you you know i think we should just all take this opportunity as dads to to sort of um learn 
about our kids and and the new ways in which we can make their lives much better. Yeah, that's great. You know, otherwise we as we wrap up, where can people go to learn more about you or your writing? That could be websites or social media. Where would you direct people to go? Sure. Um, you can go to christianpost.com and my Twitter handle is at Leo Blair. You can follow me there. Awesome. Well, Leo, we're really thrilled that you joined us again. You can find that article up at our at our show's Facebook page. Uh, and again, Leonardo Blair, national uh, writer for the Christian Post. Thanks so much for joining us today, bud. We really appreciate it. Thanks for doing it. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some... Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Ian, you uh, early on in the pandemic, you said, you know what? It would be really nice if every now and then we just ended every show uh, with just some good news. And I remember I still remember back when you were like, hey, have you heard of this good news network? And I was like, no. And now this website, I love this website. So uh, it's called Good News Network, goodnewsnetwork.org. And every now and then we'll like to take end our show by just grabbing inspirational stories, stories that put a smile on your face. So that's how we're going to end the show today uh, with, if we can get to them, five stories from the Good News Network. And Ian, you can choose whichever one you want and you can go first. All right. I'm going to go ahead and blow up the facade, Brian. We always say you can choose whatever one you want. <laughs> But we always go in order like it's always. So I'm not going to do that. What do you think of that? I'm not going to go. In I order. don't. I will not know where to go next. Then. <laughs> All right. I'm just going to pick one at random, truly at random. And this is going to throw the whole show off. Uh, here we go. In 15 months, this 441 pound man lost 228 pounds and now runs marathons to be healthy for his kids. Aw. In just 15 months, this 400. That's exact same as the title. I'm not going to read that. <laughs> The motivation to change came when the 31-year-old recognized that he didn't have the energy to play with his two young children. Since that realization a little over a year ago, Rob Sparks, that's a great last name for an inspirational story. I love it. Mm -hmm. Rob Sparks, who's now a WWF wrestler, has changed his eating habits, taken up running during the pandemic, and now weighs just 216. Before, I couldn't even walk up a flight of stairs without feeling out of breath, said Sparks, a salesman from Weston Supermare in England. Oh, sure. I mean, I tried my best uh, prior to his weight loss. Sparks was eating a whopping 6000 calories a day and led a completely Whoa. sedentary lifestyle. That's actually not that much. If you're an elite athlete, um, yeah. it sounds like maybe he wasn't. Though. The furthest I'd walk is from work down to the shop to get food. I'm not going to keep walking you through the details of his diet and habits. Either way, lost a bunch of weight. The motivation was his kids. I'm here for it. I think that's yeah. great. Awesome. Next one. Uh, I'm going to go back to the very first one because I like uh, order. How predictable of you. Little boys stuffed Bambi rescued from frozen canal. They didn't think people would care. Everyone knows Santa's favorite red-nosed reindeer knows how to fly. Unfortunately, his namesake, Rudolph, a beloved stuffed toy fawn belonging to four-year-old Nico Lavelli, uh, did not. Sadly, Nico found that out the hard way while on a walk with his mom, Brenda Duke, and siblings uh, when his... Uh, Little brother decided to test his pitching arm by talking uh, by tossing the quote stuffy over the railing next to the frozen waters of Ottawa's Rideau Canal. Unable to retrieve his best buddy, Nico and his family returned to visit Rudolph more than once. Luckily, 
the plush Bambi landed in close proximity to a distance marker sign, so he wasn't too hard to find, but prospects for a homecoming didn't look good. After several days of falling snowflakes, the forlorn fawn began to slowly disappear beneath a blanket of white, leaving behind only a telltale bump. That's when older brother Sebastian came up with an idea. During the pandemic, neighborhood social media had become a lifeline to a community isolated by the lockdown. Sebastian urged his mom to reach out to neighbors to see if anyone might be able to help. Duke was skeptical at first. I didn't want to bother anyone, but Sebastian was convinced. Uh, as hard as it is to believe, was to believe, a mission to rescue Rudolph was quickly mounted. Even the National Capital Commission signed on, pledging to put its skateway squad on the lookout. And lo and behold, uh, Rudolph was, though frozen and a bit, bit soggy, he was found and returned. What a great neighborly story. <laughs> That's great. You're the only person in my entire life that I believe uses the word neighborly like an <laughs> actual conversation. I just I have no I doubt do. at all that you <laughs> at Target are like, you having a neighborly day, neighbor? Yeah. Uh, all right, I'm going to skip over again. Who knows? Who knows where I'm going? Uh, this one, man regains sight and sees his family again after becoming first person ever to receive an artificial cornea. That's amazing. They named it Rudolph, by the way. Uh, things are looking up for the first patient ever to receive an artificial cornea implant after he was able to see his family upon waking up. Uh, the 78-year-old man could even pass the classic eye exam test of identifying numbers and letters from a distance. Wow. wow. Developed by an, an Israeli firm called Corneet. That's fantastic. The Knet <laughs> implant actually merges with natural human tissue, meaning it can integrate directly with the eye wall and replace scarred or damaged cornea through injury or disease. Is this science fiction? What is That's happening? Crazy. The surgical <laughs> procedure was straightforward. <laughs> what do you mean straightforward? <laughs> How can it yeah. be straightforward? It's the first ever. The procedure was straightforward and the result exceeded all of our expectations, said Professor Irit Bahar. Ten more people are currently signed up to receive the implant, and my guess is millions more after. The moment we took off the bandages was an emotional and significant moment. We are proud of being at the forefront of this exciting and meaningful project, which will undoubtedly impact the lives of millions. I am here for this one, too. Holy cow. That's a crazy story. That's a crazy story. Next one. Cat was thought to be a goner in California mudslides. <laughs> Three years later, the miracle cat showed up again. Uh, we don't know whether or not cats truly have nine lives, but the tale of a California calico named Patches, every cat's name Patches, I think, named Patches, is something straight of the song. The cat came back, except for the part the very next day. Patches went missing in January of 2018 when a mudslide demolished the home she shared with owner Josie Gower. Uh, Gower's partner made it out alive. Uh, oh, Gower died. Shoot. Gower, along with 22 other Santa Barbara residents, was not so lucky. Yeah, Gower's loved ones surmised that Patches was a goner as well. But three years later, the cat came back. After wandering the streets for a time, Patches wound up in an animal shelter. Thanks to a microchip registered to Gower's name, the shelter staff was able to locate Gower's daughter, who in turn alerted uh, Borgatello, who's the partner to Patches' miraculous return. When Cat and Man were re reunited for a poignant New Year's Eve reunion, Patches recognized them immediately. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. I didn't realize that the owner died. That made that a little less happy. But uh, yeah, you seem very surprised by that fact. I didn't read that one ahead. I probably should have. You know, uh, you know what word I would use to describe that story, Brian? What's that? Neighborly. 
It's pretty neighborly. <laughs> boy, boy, golly, howdy, would I? That is a neighborly, weirdly dark story. All right, last but not least. It really was. Volunteers removed 9,200 pounds of trash from one of the dirtiest rivers in the U.S. Oh, I wonder if this is back home. Oh, no, it's not. In an epic cleanup weekend, volunteers dug out more than 9,000 pounds of trash from along the banks of the Tennessee River. Organized by nonprofits Keep the Tennessee River Beautiful and Johnsonville State Historic Park, the team led another cleanup in October when they collected 4,811 pounds of trash. That's that's a lot of... Can we wrap our brains around that for a second? To a have just trash. done this in October? How dirty is this river? And it says <laughs> there's still more to be cleared or cleaned. The team is planning another event in April and aims to collect 100,000 oh pounds of goodness. trash from the river. By the end of the year, 25 volunteers gathered over three days to remove a whopping, and it gives the amount again, 9,208 pounds of trash. Do people proofread these articles? I feel like there's just a lot of <laughs> repeated data here, which, uh, again, I appreciate because it's a pretty short article. But overall, it's good people doing good things, and uh, I'm a fan. I support it. A, people of Tennessee, quit throwing stuff in the Tennessee River. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. The picture is insane. Yeah, but B, I do like that the title only said the dirtiest river in the U.S. and you immediately thought it was in Michigan, in Detroit. <laughs> I mean, we have a couple. There's a few. You're like, oh, I think it's at home. <laughs> yeah. Is that my mom's anyway, picture? Yeah. <laughs> hopefully some of those stories put a smile on your face. I have learned to uh, read them beforehand next time, mm-hmm. uh, but hopefully they did. We've enjoyed the show with you today. We're glad that you joined us and we're excited to be with you tomorrow. Uh, from four until six. And then until then, we hope you have a great night. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.